This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Wendell sat upright and woke with a start. Darkness covered the land, and the wind made the rafters creak. But he was accustomed to hearing those noises. Something else had disturbed his sleep, but he had no idea what. Straining his hearing, he listened for anything out of the ordinary, but heard nothing distinct. Only brief hints that someone was moving outside the cottage. Creeping through the darkness with the precision of intimate familiarity, he dressed and reached beneath his bed to retrieve Elsa's sword. Touching it normally brought tears to his eyes but this was the first time in more than a decade that he had unsheathed it with the intent of using it, and he moved with purpose. Using skills he had long since abandoned, Wendell crept without a sound to where Katrin slept. Her chest rose and fell, and her eyelids twitched as they do only when one dreams. Seeing her safe relieved much of his anxiety, but Wendell was not yet satisfied. Perhaps the noises he'd heard were made solely by the wind, but he knew he would never be able to sleep without checking. The pre-dawn air carried a chill, and dense fog hovered above the ground. As Wendell emerged, the air grew still, as if someone had intruded on the wind and chased it away. The world seemed more like a place of dreams, and Wendell wondered if he could still be asleep. The snap of a branch in the distance startled him, but he could see nothing from where the noise had come. Could it have been a deer? After checking around the cottage, he checked the barns, careful not to let the horses hear him, lest they give him away. Shadows shifted and moved, and the fog constantly changed the landscape, but Wendell found no signs of anyone about. Still, his anxiety persisted, and he waited for what seemed an eternity for the coming of the false dawn. Across the barnyard, a shadow moved, and Wendell froze. Shifting himself from a sitting position to a more aggressive stance, he watched and waited. Again, he saw movement, and he moved in to intercept. Out of the night came a blade to match his own, but before the blades met, he knew whom he faced. Was that you I heard sneaking around the cottage, he asked. You woke me while you were out here stomping around, Benjen said with a lopsided smile. We're getting old, Wendell said. I may be fat, lazy, and out of practice, Benjen said. But watch who you're calling old. Katrin will be up soon. 
I don't want her to know we were both out here like a couple of worried hens, Wendell said. She won't hear it from me, Benjamin said, and with a wave over his shoulder, he wandered back to his cabin. Katrin was still asleep when Wendell returned to his bed, but it seemed only moments later that she began to stir. Chapter 3 Anything worth having is worth working for. Anything you love is worth fighting for. Jed Willis, Turkey Farmer Katrin woke feeling oddly refreshed, happy to have slept well and ready to face the day with more optimism than she would have thought possible. After dressing, she stirred the stew which hung over the banked coals of the fire. More flavorful than it was the night before, it made for a good morning meal. She stoked the fire and hung a pot of water over the flames, warming it for her father, who said washing with cold water made his bones ache. Benjin wandered in from outside, looking barely awake, but smiling appreciatively as Katrin handed him a mug of stew. While he ate his breakfast, Katrin ladled a mug for her father, who had begun to stir. She knew he would be hungry when he emerged. He grunted in acknowledgement as he accepted the food, and she left them to their meal. Lighting her lantern, Katrin left the warmth of the cottage and walked into the damp coolness of the early morning air. Millie, a gray and white tabby cat, greeted her at the door, weaving in and out of her legs. By the time she reached the feed stall, a mob of cats surrounded her, demanding attention and, more emphatically, food. Katrin kept a supply of dried meat scrap and grain in an old basin, and she used a bowl to scoop out enough for all of them. A parade of scampering felines followed in her wake, Katrin put the food outside the barn. The cats fell on it, each wanting their share and more, and they were soon begging again. Katrin stopped and looked at the cats trailing her. Now, you listen to me. If I feed you any more, you'll get fat and lazy and not catch any mice, she said, shaking her finger and smiling. The cats looked at her and dispersed to various hay bales and horse blankets, content to preen or nap for the moment. Katrin mixed oats and sweet grain into neatly organized buckets. Some horses required special herb mixtures in their feed, and Katrin took great care to be certain the mixtures went into the correct buckets. Giving an animal the wrong herbs could have dire consequences, and it was not a mistake she wished to repeat. A week of cleaning salty stall after giving him oil of the poseta by mistake had left a lasting impression on her. Growing impatient, the horses banged their water buckets and pawed the floor to let her know they wanted their food immediately. Benjamin came to the barn and started dumping the small buckets into the larger buckets that hung in the stalls. He knew the order. This was a dance they had performed many times. How much wicket's root did you put in Salty's feed, little miss? Two spoons of wicket's and a large spoon of molasses, Catrum replied, and Benjamin chuckled. You did good. Looks like you mixed it in fine. Never thought I'd see a horse eat around a powder, but he'll eat every grain and leave a pile of powder in the bucket. I'm telling you, he does it just to spite me, he said, walking into Salty's stall. 
He gave the gelding a light pinch on the belly. Salty squealed and stomped and grabbed Benjen's jacket in his teeth, giving it a good shake. Without missing a beat, Benjen emptied the feed into the bucket and patted Salty on the forehead. Nice horsey, he said, and Katrin had to laugh. Ah, there's that smile, little miss. It's good to see it again, he said with a wink. She made no reply, unsure of what to say, and returned to her work. As she opened a bale of hay, mold dust clouded the air. They'd lost too much hay to mold this year, and she knew not to feed the horses moldy hay. There was not much more they could have done to prevent the problem, though. The weather had turned bad at harvest time, and they'd not been able to get the hay fully dry before baling it. Forced to store the hay damp, they salted it to reduce moisture, stave off mold, and help prevent fire. Mold claimed much of the hay nonetheless, but at least it had not caught fire. Her grandfather had lost a barn to a fire caused by wet hay. When hay dries, it goes through a process called a sweat, where it sheds water and produces heat. If packed too tightly, intense heat can build up and cause spontaneous combustion. The lesson had been passed to her father and then down to Katrin. It was something she planned to teach her own children, someday. The moldy bale of hay she threw to the steer, which could eat just about anything, and she grabbed another bale of hay for the horses. After giving each horse two slices of hay, she collected the water buckets, carrying them to the well her father and Benjen had dug long ago. It was something the men took great pride in, and Katrin was glad to have it. Her father often said it was not deep enough for his liking, and he feared it would run dry during droughts, but it had yet to fail them. He once explained to Katrin that they were at the upper edge of an artesian basin. Water became trapped between layers of rock and was subjected to immense pressure. If you were to penetrate the rock anywhere along the basin, water would rise on its own, possibly forming a small fountain. Some places in Harberton had such wells, which had been allowing water to escape for hundreds of years. After dumping out the dirty water, she gave the buckets a good scrubbing before refilling them. Then she and Benjen hung them in the stalls. Afterward, they took hay and water to the horses that were out to pasture. The routine soothed Katrin. The rhythm of life on the farm was predictable and comforting. The tasks were familiar, and she could perform them skillfully, which gave her great pride. She liked nothing better than to do something well. Doing a mediocre job was one of her greatest fears. Finding herself thirsty, she walked over to the well for a drink and was disturbed to see a shiny black carriage under the trees. A squire tended a fine black mare, and Katrin was dumbfounded to see Master Edling speaking with her father. He was garbed in formal black robes, the blue embroidery as bright as a bluebird. He seemed out of place on the farm, a place of sweat and dirt far from the pristine halls of the master house. Her father did not look happy, but neither did he appear to be angry, at least not with Master Edling. Frozen in anxious suspense, Katrin stood very still, hoping no one would notice her and fighting the urge to flee. Benjen came to her side, carrying a spare water bucket. Don't let them get the best of you, little miss. 
they're no better than the rest of us, no matter how pretty they dress or how clean they keep their fingernails, he said, filling the bucket. He pushed her toward her father as he carried the bucket to the squire. Her father shot her a steely glance and pointed to the cottage, an unspoken command. Catrin followed the two men into the cottage, cowed. Her father offered Master Edling a seat and served summer wine and cheese. After a respectful interval, he turned to Catrin. Master Edling has come for two reasons. First, he is here to represent the Council of Masters. They've decided, due to the serious nature of the incident, it would be best if you did not attend the public lessons. At least not until all of this has been sorted out, he said. Catrin heard his words, and she understood what the council meant. We don't think you should appear in public again. Ever. She thought, shrinking in on herself. Second, Master Edling has volunteered to act as your tutor. He must still instruct the public lesson days, but he will come here on the off days to give you lessons. Quite kind of him, I'd say, he said with a nod to Master Edling. I should be getting back to work, so I'll leave you to your lesson. If you'll excuse me, Master Edling? Yes, yes, indeed, Master Edling said, absently waving him from the room. Catrin felt trapped, forced into isolation. Master Edling's visit was just the beginning. Keeping her away from town would only make her appear guilty of some crime. People would start to believe the crazy stories about her. She would be shunned for the rest of her life. Master Edling was not here to tutor her, she thought. He'd come only to see if she'd grown horns or sprouted wings. Her mood dropped from fear into anger and frustration. Her rage was building, seeking release, and it took great effort not to lash out. She had committed no crime. She had only tried to save her friend. As thanks, they would ruin her life and it made her want to scream. Miss Volker, Master Edling said, interrupting her mental torment. I think that will do for today, he said, giving her one of his most disgusted looks. I do not believe you heard a single word I said, did you? I could give you the same lesson on the morrow, and you would know no difference, he added in disgust. Catrin could not argue with him. She had not even realized he had begun his lecture. But his attitude only fueled her anger. Master Edling stood and left without another word, his robes billowing around him. Catrin doubted he would return. He had seen what he had come to see. She was no monster or evil murderer, just a rude farm girl who had ignored and insulted him. His departure was bittersweet. While Catrin was not sorry to see him go, his leaving was like a death knell for her friendships. She wondered if she were destined to live as a hermit because of one freak incident. Her father came back to the cottage, looking concerned. Is your lesson over so quickly? he asked. Master Edling barely spoke a word as he left. His movements made it clear he was not pleased. Catrin could not look him in the eye. 
She stared at the floor, stifling her tears. I'm so sorry, Father. I was angry and confused. And I was thinking about everything and what it all meant and... Her voice cracked and she knew she was going to cry. Slow down, Cat. Don't get too upset on me. Let's just talk about this, he said gently, and Katrin did her best to steel herself and try to keep her emotions under control. I don't think Master Edling believes I'm a worthy student. Are you? No, sir. I don't think I am, she replied sadly. Now, Cat, you must stop this. Master Edling came here to help you, and you ignored him. He may never return. I can't send you back to the public lessons. Even if I could convince the council, it would be asking for trouble. Talk in town has grown a bit wild of late. Nat Derzinger's convinced some people that you are the Herald and that Istra will return to the skies of Godlands soon, he said, then stopped fearing he had gone too far and frightened his daughter. Now, most sane people don't believe a word of it, Cat. Everyone that knows you loves you. They know you as the spirited young athlete who competes in the summer games and as the hard-working girl that doesn't hesitate to help at a barn building. Your friends and family won't give up on you just because something unexplainable happened, he said, pulling up a chair. I'm disappointed in you for insulting Master Edling today, but I can understand your distraction. I'll have a word with him on your behalf. Your best hope is that he has it in him to forgive you. Yes, sir, Katrin replied, looking downcast. There's no sense dwelling on it. We'll just have to see what tomorrow brings. For now, I want you to look after a few more things around the farm. In the darkness of the bakery attic, where the heat was more than most could bear, Trinda watched, just as she always did. Always careful to remain undetected, she watched and waited, looking for anything that might please the dark men. It seemed all her life had been lived in fear of the strange men who came in the night, and every waking hour was devoted to keeping them pleased. As long as she gave them what they wanted, they would never hurt her again. The memory still seared and burned as if they were new. The dark men were coming again. She could feel them getting closer. When Miss Maris walked out of the watering hole, Trinda jumped and then chastised herself for her carelessness. Of all the people she did not want to know about her spying, it was Miss Maris. The dark men always asked questions about her. They always wanted to know to whom she talked and what they talked about. Trinda had only some of the answers they wanted, and it was all she could do to come up with enough information to satisfy them. Holding her breath, Trinda froze until Miss Maris was lost from view. She was, no doubt, coming to place her order. Without the breads her father baked or the dough she used to make her famous sausage breads, Miss Maris would surely suffer. The relationship between her and Trinda's father had always been tense and strained, but they were both professionals, and they did not let personal feelings stand in the way of business. 
As Trinda stood, ready to climb down and make an appearance by the ovens, she stopped. Someone she didn't recognize was approaching the watering hole, and he went neither to the front entrance nor to the stables. Instead, he walked to the shade provided by an old maple. It seemed a strange thing to do, considering there were no doors on that side of the inn. Knowing her father would scold her for not appearing while Miss Maris was in the bakery, Trinda stayed, intrigued by this unknown man's mysterious behavior. For what seemed a long time, he stood in the shadows, only the toes of his boots visible from Trinda's vantage. Then, when the streets were empty, he squatted down and wiggled a loose piece of the inn's wood siding. After sliding what looked like a rolled piece of parchment into the space behind the siding, he quickly adjusted the wood until it looked as it had. Then he melted into the shadows and disappeared. Where's Trinda today? Miss Maris asked, trying to make the question sound entirely casual as she always did. And Baker Hollis looked nervous and fidgety as he always did. Must know there's work to be done, he said. Anytime there's something needin' done, she turns invisible. Those her age can be like that, Miss Maris said, despite her not believing any of what he said. I'll be making double the usual amount of sausage breads, and I'll need triple the usual baked loaves for the challenges. That won't be a problem, will it? No problem at all, Baker Hollis said, and he looked over his shoulder as if expecting to see Trinda. Miss Maris was as surprised as he that she had not shown herself. It seemed whenever Miss Maris came to the bakery, Trinda would make a point of making herself seen. Everyone's saying this year will be better than any before. I suppose we'll have to rise to that challenge, he said. I'll send Strom over in the morning for the daily order, Miss Maris said as she turned to leave. Before she reached the door, though, a small, sweat-soaked head peeked around the corner and briefly met her eyes. Miss Maris could read nothing from Trinda's expression. It was the same bland and sullen look as always. With a sigh, she left the bakery behind and soon forgot about Trinda as the responsibilities of running her in once again consumed the majority of her thoughts and time. Sitting on a bale of hay with his knees pulled to his chest, Chase kept to the shadows, not wanting to cause any trouble for Strom, who was busy saddling a pair of horses. So many things had changed in such a short period of time that Chase could hardly believe it. He no longer felt safe in places where he'd once felt quite at home. People he had considered friends no longer met his eyes, yet he could feel the stares that lingered on his back as he walked away. Sorry about that, Strom said once the customers had ridden around the corner. Chase just handed him the jug of Huckle's juice they were sharing. Do you remember when things used to be normal? I remember. Strom said. I remember things were sometimes good and sometimes bad, but always seemed like things would get better. Now, I know what you mean, 
Chase said. I really made a mess of things. Strom laughed. You're still blaming yourself for all of this? You sure do think a great deal of yourself. Are you so powerful that you can control everyone else? I don't think so. You need to face the fact that you're just as helpless as the rest of us. Whatever happens, just happens. And there's not a thing you can do about it. Thanks for the uplifting speech, Chase said. I feel much better now. Don't come to me if you want sunshine and roses. That's not how I see the world, Strom said. You could go talk to Rosette. She still lives in a land of buttercups and fairies. Maybe she can make you feel better. She won't even talk to me, Chase said, his mood continuing to be dour in the face of Strom's humor. You see? You're utterly powerless. Therefore, you can't possibly be at fault. Doesn't that make you feel better? If I said yes, would you stop talking about it? Chase asked. Probably not. Catherine spent the next few weeks throwing herself into every task her father assigned. Master Edling did not return despite her father's many requests. Benjamin and her father did what they could to teach her, but what they remembered of their own lessons was fragmented and disjointed. Katrin learned other things from the extra time she was spending on the farm. Benjamin taught her the basics of shoeing horses along with other farrier skills. She was an apt student and excelled with little practice. It interested her because she loved horses and they had always been a part of her daily life. She had seen it done a hundred times, which helped her to quickly master even the most difficult techniques. Forge and anvil became outlets for her frustration. She coerced the hot bars into the desired form, shaping them with her will. The song of the hammer and anvil soothed her, and she quickly replenished their supply of horseshoes. Benjamin also taught her to make shoeing nails, whose shape was critical. Wide heads prevented the shoe from slipping over the nails, while the tapered edges prevented injury by forcing the nail to turn outward to the edge of the hoof against the taper. As long as the farrier is careful not to drive one backward, the nail will always poke back out of the hoof, a finger's width above the shoe. The farrier would clip most of the tip of the nail, then crimp the remains against the hoof. This technique provided a secure fit and better protection from sprung shoes. A horse will always spring a shoe at the worst possible moment, and it's good to know how to handle it, Benjamin said. You seem to handle the hammer well. Would you like to make a farrier's kit? He asked. Katrin was delighted with the idea. The hours she spent at the forge with Benjamin were the only time she forgot her worries. Using tools to create new tools enthralled her, and she was immensely proud of her new implements. In a way, they brought her freedom. There were always coppers to be made shoeing horses and trimming hooves at local farms and the knowledge that she could earn her own way was comforting. 
She would take pride in whatever work she did with them. Smiling, she tucked them into her saddlebags with care. The weather was becoming unusually volatile, and intense storms confined Ketrin to the barn or the cottage much of the time. Clear skies could quickly turn dark and foreboding, and fierce winds drove the rain. One afternoon, the sky was an eerie shade of green, like nothing she had ever seen before. Hail made her run for cover, each stone growing in size as she ran, some even larger than her fist. Benjen and her father sprinted into the barn just behind her. Wind howled so fiercely through the valley that it lifted a hay wagon into the air and over a fence, depositing it unharmed in a pasture. When the storm passed, they checked for damage. Katrin helped her father and Benjen repair the roofs on the cottage and barn. The chicken coop had also suffered damage, but Benjen mended it quickly. Abe Waldak, a local cattleman, drove his wagon behind a team of mules to the front of the barn. Anyone hurt? Luck was with us, Abe. We're fine. Thank you for checking on us, though. It's much appreciated, her father replied. Always been good neighbors. Glad to see you all well. A funnel cloud ripped through the lowlands. Looks like it made a boiling mess of things. I'm going to see if anyone needs help. We'll go with you, Wendell said. I'm sure they could use some extra hands down there. Catherine, you stay here and mind the farm. We'll be back late. Gunder may come for his mare. She's in the second stall, her father said, and the men rode off in Abe's wagon, leaving her alone. She knew someone had to watch the farm, but Catherine could not help feeling ashamed. Her father did not want to be seen in public with her. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.